Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everyone. Anyone here for the first time joining Against the Stream? Welcome. Anybody tuning in on Zoom for the first time? Welcome to you. Uh, the Against the Stream and the Monday night class uh, has several intentions. One is to teach you about Buddhism, a place to come and learn about the core teachings of the Buddha, to practice meditation together, get some instruction, some support, some encouragement. Another is to uh, facilitate you meeting and connecting with other people who are interested in meditation, interested in Buddhism, and it's a core tenant of, Buddha, of Buddhism to um, develop friendships and supportive long-term uh, relationships with other meditators, with other people on this path that is asking us to do something and live uh, a way that is uncommon, that is not normal, <laughs> totally weird and abnormal way to live our life being mindful and trying to be kind and compassionate and forgiving, not qualities that are generally upheld by uh, the world and trying to do something quite radical, needing support in doing that, needing friendships of people who will encourage and support and, um, and at times call us on our ship, confront us. And so my hope, I've always had this hope and I've seen it be very successful over the years, where if you come here, um, I think it's harder for everybody on Zoom to uh, do it as much as it is in person. But if you come regularly, you meet the other people here and develop friendships. And I've seen that happen. And, and the Sangha, the community, Sangha is the Buddhist word for our community, becomes central in our lives if you want it to be. Um, and the Buddha thought it was very important. I'm going to talk tonight a little bit about Sangha and the importance of friendship and, and um, on the path that it's part, it's a huge part of our practice. Often we think about meditation, like I'm a, I'm a meditator. That's my spiritual practice. Um, but I want to encourage us to think about friendship. That's my spiritual practice, part of my spiritual practice, how I show up in my relationships is uh, as important as how much I meditate. Now, of course, the more you meditate, the better friend you'll be. <laughs> the more patient, the more tolerant, the more forgiving, the more uh, compassionate you will become and people will uh, like you better <laughs> and you'll like yourself better and all of those things. So you can't, you know, meditation is, is a necessary aspect, but meditation alone is, um, is not Buddhism. Buddhism is a relational path that uh, connects with every part of our life and, um, and relationships is, is a core part of being human. I'm gonna talk about that tonight. And I like to start with a prompt to ask you to practice 
uh, being friendly to each other and talking to each other and listening to each other. And I know some people have this like, fuck, I came here to meditate and you're making me talk to these weirdos and mm -hmm. uh, on Zoom or in the room or um, I know there's some resistance and I, I know some of you like it and you're like, it's like sometimes it's that introvert extrovert battle. The introverts are like, fuck, I don't want to talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, the extroverts are like, great, I have an audience. <laughs> People are gonna listen to me. Uh, I may or may not listen to them, but they are gonna <laughs> listen to me. Um, and I don't, I don't have a clear prompt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this, I, I try different things. Um, for a moment, think about your experience with friendships and supportive friendships and spirit you know what you might classify as your sangha or spiritual friends not just the you know people you grew up with or went to school with or or uh, work with or um, but since since you've been meditating maybe some of you are quite new but other friends that are meditator friends that are interested in buddhism maybe you know recovery is a, a big part of our community your fellowship your your sangha and think about those for a moment and bring to mind someone in particular that you feel like has been a really good friend to you. And it might be hard, right? Like sometimes your mind goes like, fuck, nobody's been a very good friend to me. Or hopefully, or maybe your mind goes, oh, I got a long list actually of people that have been quite good friends to me and quite supportive and encouraging. and. Um, So in a moment, I'd like you, I'm gonna, at home, I'm gonna break you into small groups and um, into the Zoom breakout rooms. And in the room, I'm gonna ask you to turn, do this just one-on-one, -on -one. try to find one person in the room. You can, if it ends up being three, it's okay, but uh, smaller groups at home, I think I don't, they won't let me go smaller than groups of three. Um, and rather than talking about yourself, tell, tell the uh, people in your small group about your friend. What are some of the qualities that you've appreciated about this other person, how they've supported you and tolerated your shit over the years and um, and been loving and kind and maybe forgiving. Maybe, you know, in most relationships, there's some conflict, any real friendship, there's conflict and how your friend has helped navigate that conflict, being patient or forgiving or um, accepting of, of us. That makes sense as a prompt. Don't talk about yourself and what a great friend you are. <laughs> talk about some of the other people in your life that have been good, friendly to you. So choose somebody and um, break into small groups and at home. I like, um, and those of you that have been meditating with me know that I, I use the term uh, friendliness in our meditation instructions a lot to establish an inner attitude of friendliness. So put extra uh, effort into that tonight as we're going to talk about what it means to, to be a good friend and to um, have, uh, have good friends. But this... Um, primary relationship that we all have is with ourselves. 
with your own mind, with your own body, with your own emotions? And what does it look like to become friendly? All those qualities that we can probably pretty easily name or that you're looking for in friends. I want somebody who's kind and patient and compassionate and gives me their attention and <laughs> is uh, forgiving and all of these qualities that we can talk about tonight that we're looking for in our friends and the importance of developing those inner attitudes and qualities towards our own mind. And maybe even as a question, have you made friends with your mind yet? Or are you still battling your mind? Because your mind's probably not a very good friend to you. Is it? Most likely not. Most likely your mind's kind of an asshole. Critical and judgmental and does a lot of comparing and gives you some terrible advice um, that you often obey. And so having a friendly relationship to a mind that maybe isn't all that wise yet, all that compassionate, all that loving, all of that. Uh, and, and um, you know, like in recovery, we talk about being extra patient with like the newcomers, like people who are brand new coming into recovery and you're gonna be extra patient to them even though they're really fucking crazy and annoying of developing that, you know, that there's that term of like, keep coming back. <laughs> or thanks for sharing, like with a little sarcasm. Try that with your own mind. Thanks for sharing. If you can develop that sort of wisdom around your own inner experience, when your mind is telling you, you should really be angry, afraid, you know, you should be suffering. And you could just turn to your own mind with friendliness and say, thanks for sharing. It's part of what we're doing in Buddhism is we're, we're becoming aware of the impersonal nature of, of a lot of our thoughts and emotions, learning to not take them so personal, to not believe them so much, to not be so identified with them. Uh, there is even a proposal that... Um, some, some, have, some Buddhist teachers have said that maybe the whole reincarnation and the end of, of reincarnation, that the goal of Buddhism, it says, you know, you will enter the deathless. If you get enlightened, you will, you'll be free from this cycle of reincarnating. And some Western psychological-minded uh, teachers have said, like, maybe it's as simple as no longer incarnating as your mind and believing I am this mind. I am these thoughts and these feelings and these, and it's a huge part of what we're doing. And having friendliness, having a friendly relationship to your mind, even though it's not such a good friend to you all of the time, being patient and tolerant and loving to our own minds. So let's meditate and develop that skill and hopefully improve our friendliness. And, um, and then we'll talk about friendship and relationships and sangha and after we meditate. So find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. And the relaxed part is important. Finding that posture where your body is upright, but as an act of friendliness to yourself, let go of the tension 
in your brow, in your jaw. Release your shoulders, your chest, your belly. Let the flesh of your body hang loosely around the skeleton, upright, but soft. Soften your belly with each exhale. Establishing mindfulness is the act of directing our awareness, present time, non-judgmental, kind, friendly awareness, starting with the body, directing awareness to the sensations of the body. Breathing in, knowing that you're breathing in, feeling the sensations of the breath. Breathing out, knowing that you're breathing out. Not lost in thought about future or past. But here, present. Mindful of the body sitting, breathing. We're not trying to stop the mind from thinking, but we're choosing to redirect our attention away from the thoughts. Let the thoughts be in the background. Let your attention be grounded in the physical form, the sensations of the body. And for most, the breath is a good anchor to the present time experience. Receiving the breath with friendliness. If you're new to practice, be a little bit strict about coming back to the breath when a thought aiming, keep returning to the breath. 
if you've been practicing for some time, you know that observing the thoughts as they arise and pass through the mind is part of our practice. Friendliness towards the mind, towards the emotions that arise and pass in the heart, the mind, towards all of the sounds, sense door, experience. It can be good to just keep it simple with the breath for the first few minutes of a sitting. When we get lost in a thought, what's a friendly way to come back to the breath?
And you can choose to keep it simple. Breath, body awareness, the first foundation of mindfulness. And begin to open to the feeling tone, investigating, bringing this curiosity, interest, awareness, not just to what sensations are happening, but the feeling tone of the sensations, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Developing tolerance for discomfort, sitting in it, being mindful, learning to be friendly towards our pain. If our experiences are pleasant, the friendly, wise relationship to pleasure is non-attached, appreciation, enjoying the pleasant mind states, sensations, emotions, without clinging to them. As an act of friendliness, we let go. Allow the impermanent nature of this experience to be. Opening to the sense doors, the mind states, third foundation. Kind of thoughts as your mind producing, memories, plans, fantasies. And are they pleasant or unpleasant? The attempt to meet even anger or fear or resentment with kindness. As we attempt to become compassionate and friendly towards our loneliness, our feelings of insecurity.
letting go as much as we can in this moment of our agenda for this moment to be any different than it is. An act of kindness to relinquish our attachment, our cravings. To accept this moment just as it is, this breath, these thoughts, these sounds, these sensations. A kind awareness.
and in the last couple of minutes, turning towards the practice of loving kindness, metta, which is also known as unconditional friendliness towards all living beings. With the simple phrases, may all beings experience happiness, be happy. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering, the clinging, the aversion, the self-centered fear that creates suffering. May all beings be happy. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering. Extending this in all directions to our friends, our family, the unknown masses of humans into the animal realms, the sky, the sea, the earth. The intention of friendliness, love and kindness towards all beings everywhere. Even if you can't quite feel that yet, just the intention. Remember that you are part of the all, ending with loving kindness towards yourself, towards your own mind and body and heart. Wishing yourself happiness, ease, freedom.
I'm sure that um, as a teacher, I project my experience on others. I had such a difficult time uh, in my early years of meditation dealing with my own mind and my mind was so unfriendly that I assume that that's true for others. But I am also aware that I could be wrong that actually some people come to meditation not quite as fucked up as I was. And maybe your mind isn't as abusive and unkind and unhospitable to you as mine was to me in the early years of my practice. I hope that's true for you. Um, my experience was that um, I felt it's a little dramatic, but it, I felt like my mind was trying to kill me in a lot of ways. And, and, and literally, I was a bit suicidal. And my mind was often saying, like, you should kill yourself. So it's not just drama. It was actually my experience where my mind was like, you know, just end it. And, um, and I can remember early meditation experiences where my mind would just be so um, tumultuous and, and angry and afraid and um, chaotic when I was trying to meditate. And the only relief I found in early practice was ignoring my mind. And that's like, what a great relief, early meditation practice, the simple breath awareness, that half a breath of ignoring my confused mind. And I think that's part of what hooked me early on in meditation. And I heard pretty early, I started reading the books and go into the meditation classes. And, and I heard stuff like I've been saying to you tonight, like, well, try to be friendly towards your mind. And it just felt impossible. I can't be, how could I be friendly to my mind? And also that early, uh, I don't know about you, but when I started meditating, I was convinced that that was me. That's who I am. I am these thoughts and feelings and that's fucking who I am. How could I be friendly to, you know, my, how could my angry, afraid, unfriendly self all of a sudden be friendly to myself? I don't get it. But I got relief from ignoring my mind. And the more I ignored my mind, the more I saw, oh shit, my mind keeps thinking without my permission, without my involvement, which started to wake me up to like, oh, there's something going on in here that's not who I am. That's not me. That's not self. That's not, it's uh, impersonal. If it, was, if it was truly who I was, I would have some more control over it, I, I kind of figured. And since I clearly can't control my mind, uh, there's something, uh, it's not for a lack of trying. There's something else going on here, something impersonal. And then uh, the loving kindness, saying those 
may I be happy, may I be at ease, may I be free, and not meaning it at all. <laughs> I don't know if that's anybody's having that experience of like saying loving kindness, saying forgiveness, saying compassion, saying the right things, but not feeling it, not meaning it, not being sincere about it yet. And then over the months and years of practice, having the internal shift of uh, starting to feel it a little bit and starting to mean it a little bit and starting to uh, have a more friendly attitude towards my own mind. And, and two things happen for me. I'll start talking about friendship in a minute, I think, but uh, two things happen. One, and I've seen this, and I, I know some of you've seen this, and you will see this if you persevere on the path. The mind actually becomes more kind over the years of meditation practice. And the amount of afflictive emotions decrease. And the ability to not take it personal and see it as an impersonal part of being a person, being a human, having a mind, uh, increases that ability to see like, this is not self. This is not who I am. This is just what it's like to have incarnated with a body and a nervous system and a brain that compares and judges and lusts and fears and clings. Not so personal, not my fault, not your fault. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Like this path towards internal friendliness that it's not, I don't think very many people are able to just sit down and be friendly to themselves, but that it's a skill that for most of us takes years of developing. Do loving kindness every day for the next 10 years and see if you're a bit kinder to yourself. Do mindfulness every day for the next however many years and see if you start to realize, oh, I'm not in my mind. It's not that, you know, some of these thoughts are not optional. You can't stop the thoughts, but taking them personal becomes a bit more optional. And having, I think maybe it was last week I talked about, last time I talked a couple of weeks ago, uh, developing that wisdom to, to know the difference between wise and unwise thoughts, the Buddha's teaching where he says, you know, um, develop the wholesome mind patterns. And you do that through training your mind and abandon the unwholesome mind patterns. And you do that from training your mind. It's not just a decision we can make. It takes effort. This meditative awakening path that we're on takes long-term effort and decades, not, not months. Decades of meditation. And, you know, some of you are like, well, fuck that. I want to but what else are we going to do with our life? What else are you going to do with the next couple decades? I have this general sense that like if, if it was all good, <laughs> if it was all good, you wouldn't be here. We're all here because we know uh, I could be happier than I am. I could be more free. I could have less suffering. 
I could be kinder and more compassionate and, and more loving, and I want that. And so we practice meditation. And as I started with, meditation is so important. This inner friendliness is so important. Um, but a core part of it is also relationships, friendships, and intimate relationships as well. But just tonight, mostly wanting to reflect on the importance of, uh, there's a, a word in um, Pali, Kalyanamita, Kalyanamita, which translates as something like uh, spiritual friendships, wise friendships, uh, people that we um, go to when we're suffering and that we know will give us some good support, hopefully give us some, some wisdom, or at least have the humility to say, like, I don't know, <laughs> and not give us bad advice and not just cosign our shit, but actually support and encourage and, and, um, and bring the conversation back to the Dharma. The Dharma is so great. When I say the Dharma, I mean the Buddha's teachings. I mean the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. It's pretty simple to, to learn. And then even when you don't know, you can just be like, well, let's look at right speech and right action and right livelihood. And let's look at mindfulness and let's look at compassion and loving kindness. And it's like, I don't know all of that and don't live all of that, but I know that that's what the Buddha taught. So let's look at that together. Let's look at how that might help this situation. There's this... Um thing about friendship that so a couple of things before I read this one is there's there's one teaching where the Buddha says um, there's the Buddha's nephew is his attendant his name is um, Ananda his name is Ananda I think Yes, having a brain fart there. And uh, he remembers all of the teachings and, and everyone's getting enlightened, becoming what are called arahants, these enlightened beings around the Buddha. And Ananda's there all of the time at all of the teachings. He's the attendant. He's also the nephew related to Siddhartha somehow. And, um, and he's always going to the Buddha and saying like, I get it. And the Buddha's always saying like, you don't fucking get it. So he goes to the Buddha one time and he says, he says, Buddha, I get it. You're putting so much emphasis on friendship, the importance of Sangha, take refuge in the Sangha. Uh, he's like, it's like 50% of what we are doing is just have developing wise friendships. That friendship and relational and this communal living that the monks and nuns are doing. He's like, that's like half of our practice. We meditate. We practice renunciation, but like half of it is just living together and having being friendly to each other, patient and tolerant and kind and forgiving. And, and the Buddha says, nope, you don't get it. <laughs> says, not so, Ananda. He says, actually, Sangha, Kalyanamita, spiritual friendship is 100% of the path. It's all of what we're doing. It's not half of what we're doing. All of the mindfulness we're doing is in service of a wise relationship to our own mind, to each other, 
all of the compassion, all of the path is about relationships. It's not about getting so spiritual and mindful, living off in a cave somewhere by yourself. It was actually forbidden in the time of the Buddha to live alone as a monk or a nun. You had to live with community. Yeah, and you had to, uh, I don't know if you know about this, there's this rule in early Buddhism where the monks and the Buddha lived this way, practiced this way, um, where you, weren't, you could only eat the food that was offered to you that day. And they were beggars. They were mendicants, right? And so they would go into town and they're meditating in the forest and then you'd go to town and they say, anybody want to give us lunch? Because that's all they ate was lunch, no, no dinner. And then they would get their food and they could eat whatever they were given that day and no luck couldn't save anything. And it's thought that one of the reasons that was a rule was so that the monastics would have to interact with the townspeople, with the householders, us, the people that aren't monastics every day. So that you couldn't just go and live by yourself with your stores of food. You had to interact and have this interconnected, interdependent relationship with others. Now I'm going to contradict that teaching, the 100% of the path, and that it's necessary. There's another teaching where the uh, Buddha says, but if you can't find a suitable friend on this path, somebody who is, you know, my own words, like has enough integrity and if you can't find that person, he said, then better to walk alone than to surround yourself with fools to keep the company of people who have no wisdom. That's, and that's an interesting one like, that you can kind of let settle in. Have you felt that way sometimes of like, fuck, I'm all alone. I'm the only person I know that meditates. I'm the only person I know that's sincere about this. And um, he says better, he, said, he uses the example of a, um, is it a rhino that has one horn? Rhinos have one horn. He's like, just, just as a rhino has one horn, you can be solo if you have to be, if you have no choice. Walk alone rather than surrounding yourself with people that are going to be negative influences and bring you down in some ways. In this teaching, he talks about the qualities, seven qualities of uh, people who are worth associating with. So I'm going to, I'll read it and we'll go through it a couple of times. But the first time, uh, let's reflect on. Uh, how, much, how many of these qualities we have. He's talking about in this teaching, um, these are the qualities that you should look for in others. But let's start with the reflection. What if others are looking at me? <laughs> Do I have these qualities? And with maybe some humility and some like, maybe not yet, but I want to develop these qualities. He says, uh, the first thing is, um, they give what is beautiful and hard to give. So thinking about ourselves, am I generous? Do I give what is beautiful and what is hard to give? And I, I would classify that as generosity, giving. 
And it doesn't always mean monetary. It doesn't always mean you're buying everybody lunch. Sometimes it's just um, attention, giving of our attention to each other. So even when it's sometimes hard, like we all have this self-centered mind where, but giving our attention, giving our, um, giving our time, even when it's hard, that kind of generosity, where we'd rather be watching Netflix, but we're picking up the phone because our friend is calling us. It's hard. Well, I fucking don't want to take that call, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I think that's this is a reference to the different kinds of generosity. The, the Buddha talks about, you know, there's the generosity of giving what's easy. Your spare change, it's easy. But it's harder when you're writing the bigger check, not just your spare change. It reminds me, and I've done this a couple times to my friends on my birthday years ago, I did this. Um, and I think this is a Native American practice that I, I heard it was um, about um, taking things that you don't want to give away, like looking through your stuff and, and then choosing like a certain number of items of the things that you really want to keep and choosing to give them. You know, the white elephant party thing? I did, a, I did a white elephant. I was like, everybody has to bring something that they don't want to give away. That you know to keep that you are attached to, hard to give. And so thinking about it, do I do I do that? Am I am I do I give what is beautiful? What is hard to give? Does what is hard to do? Do you have? some of those friends, or we can see those qualities in ourselves where it's like, yeah, when it's easy, sure, if I have free time, but not when it's hard. Does what is hard to do. I don't know exactly what this is referring to, but even practice, even like showing up to Sangha on Mondays or going on retreat or practicing renunciation or um, you know, some of the practices, it's hard, meditation renunciation, or, you know, it's hard to do. I want to be around people that do that. I want to do that in my own life. And I want to be around people that are committed to uh, difficult practices. I've thought um, and said that one of the reasons that I started Buddhist practice as I, you know, was kind of got into recovery and I got a little bit of relief from prayer. I remember when I was first doing like the 12 steps and they're like, do this prayer and turn it over. And I remember getting a little bit of relief from it. And I got a little bit of relief from um, mindfulness. And then I was as a, as a addict and as a, uh, you know, novelty seeking intensity junkie, I was like, I want to do the hardest shit there is. I'm going on silent retreat. And like, I feel like, I feel like a prayer, like a yoga class is like such a cheap buzz. It's like a fucking wine cooler. It's like, but I like heroin. I really love heroin. (laughs) Crack cocaine, it's delicious. And I'm of course biased, but I feel like what we're doing, Buddhism, silent meditation, 
retreat practice, renunciation, living a life of nonviolence, of honesty, of integrity, that like this is hard. This isn't the easier, softer, uh, quick fix, right? There's a whole bunch of places down the street in Venice where, you know, they'll promise you bliss and they'll lead you in a beautiful, distracting meditation that'll feel really good. And we're sitting here being like, nope, just feel your pain. <laughs> Turn towards your loneliness. <laughs> Observe your mind's tendency towards unworthiness. So I'm, I don't know if the Buddha is referring to that, but I like to frame that as like, what's hard to do? These practices that not very many people find meditation easy. And I tend to think if it's too easy, you might not be doing it right. If all of the time meditation is just like rainbows and butterflies, you might not be paying attention. Does what is hard to do endures painful and ill-spoken words. How are you when somebody ill, uh, I don't know what the, <laughs> speaks ill towards you, disses you, endures painful and ill-spoken words. How are you in conflict? How quick are, how quick are we to defense, to um, boundaries? You can't fucking talk to me that way. You know who I am, who I think I am. And I think that this is important because there's a whole other conversation about boundaries and self-esteem and, you know, but that even in healthy relationships, it's going to be conflict. And at times there's going to be ill-spoken words. You're going to be offended. And um, that's part of our practice. And part of our practice is to, at times, endure it, to accept, rather than go too quick to, like, this current sort of, like, that makes me feel unsafe. Like, that's my practice, actually, to feel unsafe sometimes. It's my practice to uh, endure conflict, to face it, to be with it. Endures painful, ill-spoken words. Their secrets they share with you. How are you about sharing secrets? How close to the vest do you keep your stuff? With those appropriate, you know, are you pretty transparent, pretty honest, pretty sharing your secrets? Um, your secrets they keep. So turning that around. How are you at holding other people's secrets? Do you keep it or do you have some leaks? Well, I'm mostly going to keep it, but. When misfortune strikes, they don't abandon you. So again, looking at ourselves, how are we um, with people whose misfort when misfortune strikes.
Are you, uh, you hang in there with people that are going through a real hard time? They're maybe not very pleasant to be around in the midst of their misfortune. When they're down and out, they do not look down upon you. How are we with our friends who are down and out in the midst of crisis, misfortune, relapsing, whatever it is, do we continue to show up? important reflections for all of us and to say like, oh yeah, no, I'm pretty quick to avoid people who are suffering. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like to deal with it. I'm pretty quick to gossip when people tell me their secrets. I like the power of it and I share it. Maybe I'll even use it against them later. Hopefully not, but maybe looking at that. So then looking at this list, um, from the Buddha who says, a friend endowed with these seven qualities is worth associating with when we're developing relationships and, and especially Sangha relationships and Kalyanamita, spiritual friendships, and, and looking around and through this lens, I want to associate with people who are generous, do what's hard to do, who have the, the ability to endure painful and ill-spoken words for when I do talk some shit to them, that they'll forgive me. Because, you know, we can be messy too. Yes, we have right speech and we're all trying to not do that. But the reality of relationships is it's going to be messy. And if you get upset, you might say some shit you don't, that's, that's uh, painful. Looking for people who are honest about their secrets, keep your secrets looking for friendships that when misfortune strikes, they don't abandon. When you're down and out, they don't look down upon you. It's not pity, it's compassion, it's empathy, it's, it's uh, being there with you, isn't it? And, and he ends, he says, a person in whom these traits are found is a friend to be cultivated, cultivated by anybody that's wanting a friend. So I think it's so important to put our own look at ourselves and say, do I have these qualities with humility and say, not yet, but I'm developing them. And then look at other people that we're developing relationships with and say like, they don't have all of these qualities, but it looks like they're working on them. They're trying. And if you're very fortunate, maybe you have some people already in your life that have these qualities that are there for you, no matter what are generous are kind, are, have the integrity of keeping the, the secrets. And I don't know um, about you, but I feel like it's, as we age, you know, and there's some diversity in age in our community but it's quite different, the relationships in your 40s and 50s, or you know, some of you are still in your 20s and 30s, um, or 60s or 70s. Or, 
But adult friendships are so much different than those like childhood friendships where like sometimes you used to just have those like you just click with somebody and it's fast friends and all of a sudden you're in you know, a it's like as adults it's like we're too fucking busy for that <laughs> too many responsibilities other you know intimate relationships parenting professional stuff and it takes quite a bit of effort to uh, come into a community as an adult and say and i need to make friends with these people and i'm looking for the quality friendships uh, where am i going to fit that in how am i going to add this to my friendship to my to my life um, and then finding the people that are available for it and part of that hard to give is all of us knowing that it's an important part of our practice to show up for each other even when we're busy even when we're have lots of other commitments already to show up for each other and to put ourselves out there for each other. Some of my thoughts about um, the importance of what we're doing, the relational aspects of the Buddhist path, the Buddha's encouragement to um, develop friendships as part of our spiritual awakening, not as some sort of separate, you know, extra credit, but that as a central part of what we're doing is um, making these friendships with each other and making this friendly, creating this uh, friendly attitude towards ourselves. Maybe I'll end with uh, that reminder that the Buddha said, when I came to enlightenment, all that remained, he said, I used to suffer. I had all this craving and clinging and all this aversion and anger and fear and self-centeredness he said when i was free from the self-centeredness and from the attachment and the aversion free from greed and hatred and delusion he said all that remained was a feeling of loving kindness for all living beings metta which is unconditional friendliness when we're not so self-centered we're more friendly <laughs> when we're not so attached we're more friendly when we're not so aversive, we're more friendly. Is that also compassion and equanimity and appreciative joy? And these positive uh, emotions are the outcome of the freedom that we experience in this path. So I'll open it up if there's any questions or clarifications or comments or anything that you'd like to talk about. Stuff I didn't address or Anybody at home, if you have a question, you can raise your hand in the. There's one in the comments. Okay. Question is, how do you invite and intrigue others, friends to meditate? A, a great question and a common question and um i don't know if i know the answer my own experience 
has been that my commitment to my meditation practice, my Buddhist path, has naturally uh, intrigued many friends. I've had a whole bunch of friends over the years that I didn't preach to much about it or even invite, but that they saw me modeling it and noticed the changes that were happening in my life, and that got them interested. That's been my experience. So, um, you know, Jesse, I would think that as you practice more and model it more in your own life, that you'll see that some of those people around you will, will get interested. And some people never will. And I've got some really good long-term friends that have some of the qualities of that list, not all of them, that have no interest in meditation and no interest in Buddhism. And they're not Kalyanamita. They're just homies that I've known for a long time. And that, you know, we're, we're more interested in talking about motorcycles and poker than the Dharma. <laughs> and I maintain those friendships and I like having those friendships, but they're not this quality that we're talking about here. Please. Yeah, I just, uh, this just was a, uh, I like the this topic, uh, the one about, the part about, what do you, what's your reaction, I think it was something like, what's your reaction when someone's like, you know, talking smack or whatever, and man, this has been a tough one for me, I've done a lot of work on this, and it's gotten a lot better, um, just, I guess, from your, I think I know your answer, but maybe <laughs> from a Buddhist perspective, I, I still fall into that trap of like whether it's you know someone I know or someone that I don't know, and let's say they're they're talking smack or something, crossing the boundary or whatever like that. And sometimes I'm okay with just oh good, you know, it's not personal. But sometimes I suppress and it's like it just sits there and then it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and I'm not really like I don't really blow up, but Maybe my question is, I guess, like, what, from a Buddhist perspective, how do you maybe safeguard against suppression rather than actually, you know, <laughs> being okay with it? Let's see if I can repeat part of it for the people at home that probably couldn't hear you. Question is about like when uh, in conflict and this um, suggestion, like to be uh, you know tolerant of it and to to bear it and um, endure it I think is the way that it's said in that and that that's difficult and that um, how do we know the difference between enduring and suppressing and kind of bottling it up uh, and what is the practice to to help us with that I would think uh, mostly like mindfulness of your body like uh, somatic awareness. Uh, in that moment of how tight the belly gets, how the jaw clenches, how the, you know, shoulders, you know, and a kind of embodied awareness of like, oh, I'm, this is anger in my body. And I'm going to try not to make it come out, you know, I'm going to try not to, you know, spill it out in this moment, but I don't need to tighten my, you know, and shove it down. Can I soften to this and relate to this anger, this fear, this 
sadness, whatever it is that's reacting to this conflict or this shit talking that's happening right now. Um, so that there's a physical practice around it. So that it's not just a mind practice, but it's an actual body practice around, oh, wow, my, my belly gets tight. You know, my ass gets tight when people talk shit. I clench my jaw. I start sweating, right? I ball up my fists and, you know, and trying to release all of that and tend to it in the moment so that you feel it and let it come through rather than what you were talking about suppressing it. Because um, suppression is usually a, a tight jaw, a hard belly, a, you know, clenched fist, something, some kind of physical pushing it down, putting in, the, in that hardness in the bellies. My experience, I don't know if that, if you relate to that, but I feel like, um, I saw that I did that a lot. I tightened my stomach. And as I started softening my stomach, just letting the emotion be there and uh, res responding to it, relating to it rather than pushing it away. And, you know, sometimes we end up saying something and being reactive in an unskillful way. And sometimes we're just able to feel it, but tending to the sensations in the body, the emotions in the body, I think is the been mostly my practice around that. Yeah. And then um, we all know this, but it's hard to remember it when it's being directed at you is that anytime somebody's being unkind or unskillful or fucking asshole in that moment, it's because they're suffering, right? You know that we can reflect on our own Every time we've been the asshole, it's because we were suffering. We were confused. We were, and we've all been that person at times in our life. And then we can reflect back and be like, why was I so unkind or unskillful? Or I was, I was in deep confusion, suffering, ignorance at that time. Or I wouldn't behave that way. I was definitely not coming from a, a place of wisdom and compassion. So we know that's true. And sometimes reflecting on that and, and being able to see, oh, this person's really suffering right now. It's spilling out onto me. It's getting all over my shoes and I don't fucking like it. Um, but it helps to see the first noble truth of suffering that that unskillful person is experiencing. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't be behaving in this way. And that can help us have some compassion and some forbearance, some tolerance for it. Welcome. Tara, go ahead. I guess my question was similar. I was saying, how can you be non-reactive and have meta when people seek to harm you? But I guess that's sort of what you were saying about like knowing that they're suffering. But it's still hard if they're actually doing things which severely impact your life in a negative way. Absolutely. And it's that balance between compassion for their confusion. I, I, you've probably heard this before, Tara. There's a um, teaching, really high bar teaching that the, from the Buddha, where he says, if you truly get the importance of compassion and loving kindness, and if you get my teachings, he said, even if they're attacking you, 
and they're holding you down and they're sawing off your arms and your legs. He said, you wouldn't let anger or hatred enter your mind. You would radiate loving kindness toward these poor, confused souls who don't yet know that the karma they're creating for themselves by hurting you is going to be unbearable for them. Like that's a fucking high bar. Looking at people who are trying to hurt you with so much compassion that you're like actually meeting them with like, wow, I really uh, genuinely, I'm wishing you well and I'm sorry for the karma you're creating for yourself and in hurting me in this way. We're trying to hurt me in this way and sawing off my fucking arms and legs. <clears throat> That's such a physical example. I also feel like there's a place for self-defense. Don't let them saw off your arms and legs if you can help it. Especially against somebody innocent, a child or an animal. Yeah. Yeah. So some of it's the equanimity understanding that we all have our own karma and that our happiness or unhappiness depends on how we react to what's happening. And that, you know, people, people's words, there's a teaching where the Buddha says, you know, somebody's insulting him and, uh, you know, criticizing him and insulting him. And he says to the person, um, he says, you know, if you bring a gift and try to give it to somebody um, and you've, you know, you've prepared this gift and you say, hey, I've gotten you this gift. But they say, I, no, thank you. I don't want to receive the gift. I'm, I'm not going to accept it. Um, does that gift belong to you or to the person that you intended to give it to? And the person that's insulting him says, well, I guess it would still belong to me if they won't accept it. He says, okay, I don't accept your insults. That kind of radical, you know, ability to be like, yeah, hey, you can say whatever you want to me you're owning that. That's your karma. I don't need to take it on. It's good, but it's fucking hard in the moment when somebody's attacking you to just be like, nope. When it's words, when it's physical, it's different, you know. And then sometimes we do need to defend ourselves or defend each other. The animals, the children, you know, the example, of course. We don't want to become complacent or so pacifist that we're not uh, taking appropriate action. Maybe that's enough for tonight. It's almost nine. Couple of things. Um, we got a retreat coming up against the stream. Doing doing what's hard to do. Uh, retreats are great. They're so good for us. You make so much uh, more progress doing a retreat than you can in your daily practice. It's an important, uh, I think, a necessary part of, uh, of your life if you want to become serious about this Buddhist path. Um, against the stream, I'm teaching a retreat October 9th through, I think it's 16th. It's um, 
six nights, seven nights, uh, and it's up in Big Bear, uh, near Big Bear Lake. It's um, a seven night silent meditation retreat, open for registration. Um, I reserved the, the, the retreat center um, thinking that we were going to get more people. We've only got about 20 people. Um, I think I have to pay for 35 people. So we're going to end up in the hole a little bit on this retreat because not so many people are, have registered. Um, that shouldn't be the reason that you come, but you should come if you want to. And if you feel motivated and you feel ready to do a retreat or you haven't done one yet this year and you have the time, uh, it's $750, which is one of the cheapest seven-day retreats I've ever been able to find You know, a place because they're so expensive to rent retreat centers. And um, if you can't afford the 750 and you want to come, there's actually partial scholarships where you could come for as low as $250 because somebody in the community donated a few thousand dollars to make it available for people who can't afford it. So if you have the time and the motivation, uh, you can come on retreat with us. It's week after next. Um, registration is available. It's on the um, website. If you're on Zoom, it's in the... Uh, so we do sitting meditation and walking meditation all day. You know, we have the three meals. I give the instructions kind of like I did tonight and I give a talk in the evenings and the rest of the time you're just in sitting and walking meditation practice and you're with a whole, you know, bunch of other people, 20 or 30 other people and everyone's in silence. We actually go, it's called noble silence where we don't do any reading or writing or listening to no electronics, anything like that. So you're just meditating, sitting meditation, walking meditation. The food becomes an eating meditation. Um, and there's a relational quality to it, even though you're in silence because you're with all these other people and roommates. And we even avoid eye contact so that you can bring your full awareness into your own moment-to-moment -moment experience. It's a little intense. I started doing them when I was 19 years old. If you're a, a, an adult and you're like, I can't do that. I didn't think I could either, but I started doing it because I wanted the heroin of spiritual practice. And so I, I kept doing it. And, um, you know, 30 years later, I'm still doing it. I'm uh, not only teaching it, but continuing to attend them. And it's, it's such a powerful part of, uh, of our practice. If I had to work but on that Thursday or something, is that what that was wrong with that? Yeah. yeah, you pretty much have to attend, attend the whole thing. You got to get free for the whole week. Um, someone else was like, oh, but I'll work while I'm, you know, in my free time. I'm like, mm, no free time. And you got to be silent the whole time. So hard to work silent, including not being able to do any emails or anything. So yeah, you got to give your full time to it. It's worth it if it's a few day retreat. It's just a little disruptive to have people coming, you know, leaving early or it's like you form a community and then you stay for the whole whole thing. Soup to nuts, as they say. So come another time when you can come or get work off on Thursday. And I also have a one day. Thank you for the reminder in November. Uh, both of those are available for registration on the website. Uh, lastly, Against the Stream is supported solely by your donations. Nobody else is paying for this for us. We pay for this. 
uh, rent and electricity and salaries for the uh, couple of employees that we have. So be as generous as you can. Uh, suggested donation is $20. If you can give more, please give more. Um, if you don't have $20, know that you're welcome to be here regardless. Tara is our volunteer and she'll be at the uh, desk. If you want to give cash, there's a bowl for that. There's QR code for the Venmo or the PayPal you can do, or you could slide a card. She also has a square reader if you want to do a card at home. You need to go through this link here in the chat over to the um, donations page and um, please offer a donation to support against the stream. And I hope some more of you come decide to come to the retreat and I will be here ne next week and I'll see you then. Many goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us get as free as possible, be as friendly to ourselves and each other as we can be. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.